Hi everybody, welcome to this week's episode. Hope you're well. It's uh, Tuesday afternoon. Um, sort of a late, late again, I'm afraid. Sorry about that. Just um, quite busy at the weekend and uh, it was a bit of a... Just turn this volume up a little bit. That should be better, that should be better. Um, yeah, just a bit busy at the weekend. Got it's quite hard to play, and then I sort of changed my mind about what I was going to do today. And I just decided I was going to do a kind of random, just a random one, um, talking a little bit about a few technical things and stuff, um, a bit about recording, uh, a bit about doing sort of collaboration posts, like uh, when you're playing like jazz tunes. Um, yeah, so, but I sort of challenged myself um, to basically just turn on, just turn the recording on and start, as opposed to doing some sort of mega planning thing, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's like, um, right, okay, here we go, here we are. It's horrendous weather, so... Um, so annoying because um well it's one of those things where i've kind of learned in the last few weeks the last couple of months actually i've kind of got a bit better at um at diy things um and we're currently moving our pond we have a pond in our garden which is um it's a nice pond it's not that big. It's got four quite nice koi carp in it, which, um, you know, they've kind of grown to the size of the pond. They're quite big, not huge. Um, they're about 20, 18, 20 years old fish, so, you know, they could potentially live another 10 years. Um, but the problem is the liner of the pond is it's like 18 years old, whatever, whenever the pond was built. So... Um, we had to make a decision about kind of do we replace the liner so get somebody in take the fish out do all that kind of stuff it's all a bit of a palaver spoke to this guy and uh, made it sound quite complicated like all these people do because you know essentially they're specialists and you know they want to um they want to kind of they want to get your business don't they which is perfectly fine you know um and then we talked about having this pond in the front garden, which I wasn't very keen on. We have a very busy road outside our house, and a lot of people walk past as well. I think people throw things out of car windows and just throw things around when they're going past, you know, just crap, shit. They throw stuff out of their cars, you know, and stuff. Uh, some people are just, you know, kind of scumbags, really. And... Uh, and I wasn't that keen on sort of just having the pond at the front of the house, really. Just when people walking past and you never think about chuck things. And we, when we do have a net over the pond, because we have, um, believe it or not, we have a heron that comes from time to time and uh, and sits by the pond. It's always very early in the morning. Uh, I've seen it a couple of times taking off. Um, it's quite a sight actually, because our garden is in a quarry and. Uh, we have some. It's funny because we have a couple of plants that are quite uh, prehistoric. This gunra, big, big leaf, looks like a big rhubarb. You know, huge, huge leaves. The leaves are like six, eight foot across. 
this year it's grown massive, particularly big. Um, and so seeing the heron sort of taking off, which is, you know, they're always a pre, quite a prehistoric-looking animal, aren't they? Bird, you know, all birds are prehistoric, aren't they? But, you know, it's got that kind of thing of, of looking like an old creature, whereas like a sparrow or a robin just looks like a bird, doesn't it? Um, you know, uh, so when it takes off and you can see this gunner in the background, it's like a bit weird. It's like you've travelled back several million years, you know. Um, which is a bit of a thought. So, yeah, so anyway, uh, we have a net over the pond which does protect the fish from being eaten by the heron, you know, which the heron would do. It would, it would gobble them up in five seconds, you know. Um, well, one at a time, but... So, so there would be something over the pond. But anyway, we decided to put it by the side of the house in a slightly more... Um, it's like in a comp- bit of a compromise there. We had to move... Uh, we had to dig out a wall and stuff, and uh, which we both did together, and then, and then uh, when we had to build this pond out of, we got a lot of stone. We had a, we had a new drive put on our house, and uh, blah blah blah. We got a lot of stone left over. Um, nice stone it is, and we built anyway. Built a pond out of that. It's quite a nice big pond. It's quite a bit deeper than the old pond, and it's bigger. And uh, anyway, it's a big job, but we decided to do it ourselves, which we're kind of halfway through now. And then the weather has, today, has scuppered me. I was all set today to kind of uh, do quite a big job on it. And uh, anyway, so that's that. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's so wet, you know. It's just depressing, I have to be honest with you. Um, This is my kind of time off work, so I'm a bit annoyed, really, (laughs) just with that thing of, uh, you know finally got some decent time off and it's just horrible and uh yeah and it's been like that really it's looking like it's gonna be like that for the rest of the week you know but you know there you go um but but the weekend it was dry a bit so we had to kind of crack on with some diy stuff so it kind of kept me away from the drums and i haven't done anything on the drums um not picked up a pair of sticks for um, you know three days and maybe four days um yeah three or four days um so it's been a bit of a weird one i was like oh oh yeah drums podcast i need to um get my head in gear you know and then i decided actually no i don't need to get my head in gear at all just um you know not all these episodes are specifically about anything but i had was thinking this week about well just a couple of things i've been doing in the last couple of weeks so one of the topics i wanted to talk about and i was going to play a couple of little examples today um just i'm going to add them in so they'll be done as edits i won't do them now in real time um but a couple of things i've been doing well the last few months i've done you know, you get these collaboration posts and uh, it's something I've never done before um, with strangers. You know, you get a lot... I watch see a lot of people on Instagram and they, they collab with uh, people from all around the world. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of interesting. And it's been going on for ages pre-lockdown. But during lockdown, I got approached by quite a few people to do some... Uh, jazz collaborations and the jazz collaboration is a really complicated thing in a way 
because it seems to kind of go inherently against the idea of what jazz is, about what the music is, about what one would, you know, one would take for granted as a a, a situation of uh, interaction, you know. That's the kind of thing. Jazz is kind of music that interacts. Um, and he's sort of... I've just been thinking a lot about this thing um, because... Isn't, doesn't all music interact? And then actually, then I don't know, then you get to think about what's the kind of purpose of of your part within the music, you know, what what's the sort of fundamental and then and then thinking about lots of conversations that I've had with some musicians that I really respect and um and thinking about different types of drummers that play uh, behind people in different ways. Uh, I'm talking about I'm talking about kind of jazz music, really. Um, but thinking about like when you're playing swing, um, like what one is playing off, and there's always this thing in jazz that I've always struggle with as a judgment call as you um as you play with people that you don't know or you don't know so well and that is this thing of of interaction now it's like a loaded kind of statement isn't it or uh, sorry you know kind of a descriptor or whatever interaction you know what does interaction mean does it mean that you well these kind of two extremes for me interaction can mean um passively listening so i can be playing you know grooving away really focused really listening but my playing is really just focused on my part so if i'm playing like a swing thing it's maybe just focused on playing you know just ting 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 just like ting, ting. whatever blah 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 Just because I'm not, like, responding, you know, or playing uh, phrases that are um, inspired by the player in front of me or whatever, it, it doesn't mean that I'm not interacting. But yet, on the other side of that, um, I've played with lots of people that do enjoy that kind of interaction, you know, like they want you, they want to, they want to hear in the way you comp or the way you phrase that you are, you know, listening to them and going on a journey. And then some people want it to be a real two way thing or, or three way or four way thing if it's quartet or whatever. Uh, however many ways there are, how many musicians there are in that situation and how actively they're playing, you know. And and then there's some you know some musicians that get very passionate about either side of that place you know like like I've played with lots of jazz musicians that do not want an interactive drummer as in like an actively interactive drummer and then we're back to the thing I was just talking about a minute ago like what does inter what does active interaction mean you know. It, the, the cliche of it, the obvious thing, is that if someone's playing like a phrase, I start then 
to you know to play something that's either mimicking that phrase which is the kind of lame obvious thing that is really you know uh, kind of there's a great thing about that where you know uh, a great sax player that I know um I'm not going to say his name. I'm not going to attribute any of these things to anybody because they can be a bit contentious. But it was a great thing he, he told me, and it's it's very true, and I, I really agree with this this sentiment, um, is that when somebody starts playing a phrase that's syncopated, so say you've got a, like a tempo like this, you know, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And very simply, if somebody starts playing like a phrase like... Dab do dee, dab do da, dab do da, dab do da, bap do da, dab do da, dab do da, which is a syncopated phrase against ding 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 da 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 etc. Okay, it's obvious. If everybody then starts playing bap da 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 da, you know, then it's like the whole thing stops being. Ding, 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 da, da, dit, da, dit, da. There's nothing to reference the the syncopated phrase against, you know, and and so you can you've got this kind of in in like a jazz quartet situation, a classic jazz quartet situation. You've got to say, let's say we've got a saxophone, <clears throat> a piano, a double bass, and a drum kit. Okay. And you think about the layers of sound going on within that, the the roles of each of those instruments and the layers of sound that they create and the, rib, the rhythmic impetus that they create. So you've got this drummer who's at the back of the band. I think it's the same tempo. Ding, 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 ding. So you've got that going on. You've got the bass. Now, say we're, we're in a walking situation where the bass is playing four in a bar, whatever it is and then you've got this piano which is playing behind the saxophone solo is accompanying or comping as we kind of tend to call it this is sort of abbreviated um, descriptor to accompanying somebody uh, especially in these situations comping and the piano is playing just these occasional little that did that whatever you know classic comping stuff and I'm in my left hand etc etc so I'm describing to you the obviousness of the situation there's no surprises there there's no kind of mystical thing going on but there's the opportunity, if there's a common understanding between those four individuals, that levels of interaction can shift focus between... I mean, for me, when I'm playing... If I'm playing a quartet situation, in the last, I'd say, seven or eight years, my focus has primarily been on the bass and so um, the most important thing for me when I'm playing jazz is that I'm playing with a bass player that I can play with and like playing with you know that they can be two different things um, 
you can I can play with bass players that I don't particularly enjoy playing with, but I can play with them. But pretty much most of the time I play now, nowadays, the, all the bass players I think of that I play with is quite a lot of them. You know, I tend to play with them all for a reason, and it's because that I enjoy playing with them. And it's over a wide spectrum of of, uh, of music, you know, of, of you know jazz music and other styles of music. But all all the bass players that I play with, they all play uh, jazz to some degree, you know. Uh, well, they all play it to a very high degree, actually. But they play they play jazz very differently, and so my relationship with them. Um, is uh, is a good one because even though they all might play the beat in in a, in a different place, because they all do, they're all individuals, so they've all got a slightly different kind of place where they feel the centre of the time. I can play with them all because I like playing with them, but in those in all those different players, there's maybe three or four that I would kind of go to first for specific uh, styles of music or specific types of jazz, you know. And and so I've got to this position where in the... Like when I was younger, I used to kind of focus all my, my listening, um, like my conscious listening. I used to try and listen to everything. And uh, I just don't feel like I ever could. I just didn't feel like that was ever possible, you know, to really listen to everything uh, actively, you know, and be like kind of, yeah, I'm really listening to all the aspects of this music. I, I just don't think my brain is actually capable of doing that, you know. Um, as I've got older, I, maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe I've just got older. I, I just don't think I ever really was. And I feel like my my kind of jazz playing has got better because I've, I've actually focused my energy more when I'm playing jazz on listening to the bass when I'm playing. Because I have this view, and I've talked about this before, that I, the, the, the fundamental, um, my fundamental kind of listen, my brain's processing power in a subconscious way, fundamentally, listen can can process far more than me sort of actively listening you know so i because i have a basic view that if i'm if i'm playing a trio situation which i do a lot of and, and i like a trio situation particularly guitar based drums or piano based drums um and i really like actually saxophone based drums i very rarely get to do that kind of trio you know which is a shame but i really i really enjoy that uh, that kind of setting but you know the 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 kind of classic setting for me is if i'm playing piano trio i can just listen to the bass when i'm playing really really listen and lock in and and focus and concentrate on the bass and i don't need to listen to the piano at all and when i'm playing i certainly don't get um negative feedback from the piano player saying I, it doesn't feel to me like you're listening to me or can you listen to me more or can you interact more i don't get that kind of uh, vibe going on um it seems to be fine it seems to work out well you know and it's the same with guitar trio and uh, the same with sax trio whatever i generally whereas in, i think in the past i think i had sort of reputation of being maybe over interactive and that for me i think is it was more about naivety and and uh, being kind of a bit cliched and 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 sort of having a different 
idea and purpose in the role, you know. And I actually learned that or got more experience of that by working outside of jazz and about thinking about the architecture of of music and about the architecture of a drum part and about what a drum part does, you know, and what it's what it's doing in the music and what it's saying about the music that it's within and all that stuff. And, and being a bit more team kind of player with the uh, with its purpose, you know. So to get back to this thing about the collaboration post, um, the, the, it became, I've been sort of thinking about it a lot and it's become like, sort of quite challenging to myself about about my role within doing these collaboration posts because I basically have an approach and I'll share that with you now and uh, it's a pretty simple approach and I'm going to play you two examples of that now I'll talk about it and I'll play I'll just insert the examples I'll do a little edit and then put them in um, but I generally have an approach where uh, somebody will ask me to do a collaboration and they'll say, we're going to do this tune and they'll send me the part and that's beautiful. So I can look at the part and I've got a pretty good musical brain and pretty well developed musically to be able to look at a piece of music, um, look at the kind of harmonic structure of it, look at the melodic structure, and the rhythm of the melody, but the pitches and stuff and, and basically get an idea of roughly what it sounds like. Uh, off the page not always but most of the time you know and so then there'll be a conversation about like you know who goes first in the collaboration post world it's tough in it if you're you know who's the one that lays down the track first and what i generally try and do is i try and get in there first or early uh and do two things one is i have a i set a project up with a click track so it's always in time so as it goes round, you know, the various people involved. I mean, the biggest project I did was a couple of months ago. And I think it only involved, I think it all involved about eight musicians, but it was actually a big band score. The, the, the guy, Carl, who did the sax, um, he played, I think he played about four or five sax parts, did tenor and alto and uh, Barry. Um, and then there was a guy who did some trumpet and a trombone. And then there's a rhythm section. And so it ended up being, you know, like a big bandy kind of sound. I think it's like 15 parts altogether. Um, you know, so that's going to go around those, 50, no, sorry, those eight people. And as long as the, the original project is clicked up, for me, it's number one, it's always fixable. That's the most important thing. <laughs> You know, wherever you end up in this in this situation, if you're doing a collaboration post, um, actually it reminds me. It's interesting. A friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, uh, a drummer. He knows who he is. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say who he is, but when I tell the story, he'll know I'm talking about him. He sent me a uh, a recording of himself playing, and he wasn't that happy with it. And uh, I thought it sounded mega, you know. And uh, anyway. He was saying there was something about it. He, he he didn't he didn't like. He didn't think it was settling right. And I said, well, maybe it's because uh, because this aspect of it is slightly clashing with what you're doing, you know. And I said, oh, you know, what was the order? And he said, I laid my part down first, and then this other part was recorded later. And I was like, ah, oh, well, there's the problem because the person that's put that thing down after you hasn't 
really clocked you, you know, hasn't listened to you. Um, I said, was it clicked up? And he's like, yeah, yeah, was, we did it in the studio. But I said, well, you know, is there an opportunity to go back and redo your part? And he's like, yeah, and he did, you know, and he was much happier with it because he was able to make that kind of fundamental adjustment um, in 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 part in, in a bit of the drum part that he was playing and it was like a rhythmic thing you know and it's the same with the collaboration thing what I tend to do is I tend to get in there early and say um, like I'll do the first I'll do the kind of I'll do like a guide take almost uh, and so I'm going to use it, this example of the last one I've just done it's a really nice one it's an Enrico Pieranzi uh, tune it's a piano player that I've been lucky enough to play with uh, a few times uh, a few years ago and do some ama great trio gigs with. He's an ama amazing piano player, genuinely world-class piano player, amazing musician. If you haven't checked him out, um, I really recommend it. Uh, and things like, um, you know, Morricone's Cinema Paradiso score, you know, the piano and that is him, you know. Just like, he's just like a really, I think, a really iconic piano player. Um and has recorded with... I mean, he was, when I played with him, I was, like, freaking out because he, you know, he played with Paul Motion and he played with... Um, he's played a lot with Joey Barron, you know. He's played with, like, great bass players, Charlie Hayden and uh, Mark Johnson. And it's just the list goes on, you know. And and he was famous because he, you know, uh, when Chet Baker was living in Europe, he was in... He, he, Enrico was in his band, you know, and stuff. And... So, uh, but he's he's just he's just done some amazing records with lots of um, American musicians and lots of European musicians, you know, and and I think he's a great example of um, of what the European sort of classical tradition, in a way, can bring to jazz. You know, that um, just really outstanding sort of virtuosic piano playing, um, but really swinging. And like rhythmically, like really, really strong, you know. Anyway, a friend of mine asked me to record one of the one of his tunes, and we did we did it as a quintet thing: um, trumpet, sax, and then a trio, you know, piano, bass, drums. And so, with this particular post, what happened was I actually I looked at the part, and it's quite a it's a bit of an arrangement, you know. And we sort of took a while to to kind of decide on the arrangement and uh, a couple of people went on holiday and stuff. And anyway, I actually asked uh, the piano player, Dan, I said, could you send me a guide part of the arrangement, just you playing the piano on your own with uh, with click, you know? And uh, I said, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're that in time, but it's just that thing of need a guide thing. And then I can put, I can put a guide drum part down for everyone to kind of build on top of, and and that's what that's exactly what we did. So so if this first, I'm going to play a little bit of this first take, and then you can compare it to the second take. Um, I'm not going to play all the take because it's like it's quite a long piece, five six minutes. I'm just going to play a little bit of the intro vibe, and then and then sort of how it's different the second time round. You can sort of hear us like comparison, you know. But basically, the idea, my idea was, and I, was, I always set this out quite early on with, if I'm doing these recordings with anybody, is I say, I'm, uh, I'd like, always like the option to redo my part once everybody else has done theirs, you know. Because I think that 
if you think about this kind of this kind of creative process, if you like, um, like the creative process can be thought of in two ways, can't it? It can be an in the moment thing, or it can be a thing of where you where you layer creativity from the a beginning point to what you perceive as kind of your end point. Um, and this tape was very much that. And again, it was something that I did a, I did a thing a few months ago. I was really um, lucky and blessed to be asked to do this collaboration post. Uh, well, recording, and um, sorry, not post, recording with uh, uh, a bass player I played with for a long, long time, a brilliant musician, Steve Berry, and... Um, and he wanted to do this uh, collaboration thing with uh, this arrangement he'd done of this tune, and uh, and basically he he actually suggested doing exactly what the way I would always want to do it. So he sent me like a Sibelius uh, arrangement that he'd done. It was just you know. Um, just like the hideous Sibelius thing, but everything was there in it, you know, the actual, all of the kind of parts and everything that I needed to hear. And then he sent me with that, he sent me him playing the bass live. Uh, and actually, in the end, I said to him, could you send me your bass part as a separate file? Just long, you know, they're all synced up, they're all clicked up, so they're all in time. But just because I wanted to, the bass wasn't loud enough, I wanted to have more bass when I was recording and turn down the kind of the robotics Sibelius vibe and just have more of the real bass. And, uh, and so we did that thing and then we went off to the other guys in the, in the collaboration. They put their parts on top and then Steve sent it back to me and said, can we do an experiment? And I was like, yeah, okay. He said, can you just download it, put it into the project, put your headphones on, and just record don't do don't listen to it and don't do a take like you know do like a, a kind of warm-up take just put it back in the project where you originally recorded it and just do another take that's basically done as if you were playing it for the first time which is exactly what i did and it really did change the drum part um and it didn't make it any more kind of interactive in inverted commas. Like I wasn't doing like loads of different crazy things, especially behind like the sax solo and stuff. It was just, it just made it um, kind of have a little bit more of that kind of character of, of what I kind of think it, the, the drums can really bring to that kind of music without having to be like all clever and interactive in, in like a way of mimicking phrases and being really obviously interactive. Because I, I I sort of think interaction is more about it's it's mainly about listening, you know. I and mean, you can persuade somebody that you're listening, even when you're playing the simplest part behind them, you know. Um, so yeah. Anyway, if you haven't checked that out, you could find it probably on Facebook or somewhere. Um, if you if you go and find Steve Berry. Um, he posted it on there, and then he made it was cool. He, he didn't. We didn't do the video thing with it. He made it. He made a video of him walking, I think, with his wife, um, through some woods, of just 
and it's just like a bit of a trip, you know. Uh, it's really nice. It's, it's different, quite a different way of doing it. Because a lot of the, these things, obviously, these collab postings and collab kind of recordings and stuff that people do, they want you to uh, video yourself all the time. So, and that work, always works fine for me because I'm video. I video myself playing pretty much all the time anyway. Because I'm always uh, listening back to stuff and watching, seeing what's working and what's not working. This, that's part of my kind of process, uh, if you like. Everyone has a process of practice, don't they? That's part of mine. So, um, anyway, I'm going to play you a little bit of this clip. And it was basically a thing where I w was always intending to do a another take once everybody else had put their layers on top, you know. So I was playing with this guide part which is something that uh, Dan put down for me. It was a really nice guide part. And then I recorded along to that, and then I, then that was sent around. It went to the bass player, and then it went to the... Um, it went back to Dan, and then it went to Carl, the sax player, and it went to Richard, uh, the trumpet player. And Gav... Uh, uh, then Gav and Dan did some did some stuff on a, on a we were going to do like a drum solo thing on a different section we just decided not to and they just slightly re-recorded their bits but even in this kind of jazz setting it is possible to kind of build um, recordings and demos you know in, in this way and do a pretty good job of it um, so yeah I'm just going to play a little clip of that now and then we'll come back So that's the first take. That's a bit of it. That's kind of like the intro, the head, and then into sort of the first solo, uh, which actually was on the on the finished take, um, which I'll play you a bit of in a minute. It's actually the saxophone um, first solo. Um, Dan was very kind on that guide take to play a couple of piano solos. He did one and then he did another one. 
Um, and in the middle of it is a bass solo. So again, I was having to think about that dynamic thing, not being you know too super quiet and going to a really low energy thing. Um, and then the other thing about you know doing takes is is this kind of impetus thing of like okay, sometimes in jazz the thing that does I think it drives a lot of horn players around the bend is that the rhythm section always do this kind of this kind of arc for solos. It all starts really quietly and then it starts to build and then it goes it's gotta get up to a big kind of crescendo and then it hey the solo ends it goes back down to that kind of dynamic of starting from a quiet thing and building and you know I I just think that's a real lack of listening. Um sometimes people very obviously uh, make it clear that they need space at the start of a solo. And other people, they just want you to keep going with the energy that was because that's what they're like, they're like listening and they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's like, boom, and then they get into their solo. And, you know, the, the, for the want of expression, the kind of arse drops out of it and it's like, oh, hold on a minute, where's that energy gone? I wanted, to, I wanted to carry on with the energy. So that sort of thing requires, again, it requires listening, you know, it requires people to be aware of... Um, of what's going on around you in the music. It's part of that interaction thing again. You know, uh, keep coming back to this word interaction, what does it mean? Well, it, it's just, you know, my feeling is is that it's about listening and awareness. It doesn't have a meaning like a, def like a definition. You know, interactive as in it's only ever one thing is what I'm trying to say, you know. Um, I don't even know what it would be, you know, interactive if you look up in the dictionary, but again, it, it probably has a number of descriptors, but the, the main thing in music is that it's just that, that you're switched on, you know, that you're not uh, just going through the motions. Um, and uh, yeah, anyway, so uh, that's that first take. This is the next take. And what like the, like, so one of the differences here was, um, like for instance, I didn't read. There was a bit of an arrangement thing went around between us, and the thing that I didn't clock in the middle of it was that the beginning was actually a solo piano thing, and I just played over the beginning <laughs> when uh, when uh, Dan sent me the thing. And part of it was because I actually thought, well, what's anybody going to have to play with if I'm not playing? I'm not. I don't want to send a click. I want to send something that's not got a click. You know, I want to send something that's it's got a vibe, but it's not click. It's got a click going on behind it. Um, so I kind of played over the beginning, and then it kind of transpired that I wasn't I wasn't supposed to do that. And then Dan was like, "said Oh, I really like that," and blah blah blah. And uh, anyway, when I redid this take, now you'll hear you'll hear what I do differently at the beginning because it was like this for me was the was the compromise, so to speak, uh, to uh, what was, was supposed to have been nothing. Ended up being something quite busy. And then we ended up with what we ended up with. So this is the second take. And then the, what you can just kind of hear differently, I think, with is just a little bit more, um, I think, just definition and focus of the part, or the parts, plural. Um, and... I think the melodic support is pretty similar, actually, because I know the tune, you know. Um, 
I think it's a tune. If I'm trying to think of all the tunes we played when I played with Enrico, I think we might have even played this tune. Uh, not in this arrangement, but uh, I'm not 100% sure, actually. I, I just, I just recognised the tune when we played it. Uh, it might have been on, on an album I've heard of his or something. But so, anyway, this is the second take. So I will listen to this now. And, uh, well, yeah, you can have it. Yeah. You've got like a, a definite comparison, I think, between the two. So, um, yeah, I'm hoping the rain's not too loud, actually. It's, um, it's really, really chucking it down badly, you know. And, uh, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's like horrendous. But it's quite noisy. Um, so, yeah, you probably, you probably can't hear the rain behind me. But, you know, anyway, it's, it sort of adds to a bit of the kind of character, the ambiance the vibe um anyway so just some rambling thoughts really about interaction and all that kind of stuff so that was one thing i wanted to talk about today um which i kind of thought a lot about in this last week or so uh well i've been thinking about it for quite a while actually quite a few months just because um There's a possibility that you know that the uh, making music could be different for quite a while, you know. Um, 
and I think that it's as musicians it's kind of our duty really to find um, the best ways to make music in the current situation and you know and show people that we're still um, doing what we do like I mean there's a lot of people that do a lot of solo they're doing a lot of solo gigs and stuff and that's really cool you know online and stuff and but it's just not me you know I, I'm not really into it I did when I did my um, masters master of music a few years ago I did I had to do three recitals and because of what I'd sort of set out to do within the um, within the trimesters it was like uh, the, the thing I'd set out to talk about and and the thing that, the, that followed through was playing. Um, it was it was about technique and about playing in. Uh, this leads me on to the second sort of topic today, actually, quite nicely. Um, playing in three different dynamic situations and um, demonstrating, hopefully, within those situations, uh, a a intent or control of weight and sound um, that was appropriate for those situations. And so so this is kind of, it'll make sense when I, this all sounds a bit pretentious, but it, it does make sense. The first thing was a jazz, acoustic jazz trio. So I did, a, did a, the first uh, gig at the end of the first trimester was a acoustic jazz trio. And when I say acoustic, it was no mics on the piano, um, no mics on the drums, obviously, God. And uh, the bass um, was acoustic. I think there maybe was... He had the amp as an option. How much of the amp he was using in the room? Maybe, I'm not sure. Uh, but the idea was the piano was not mic'd. So the piano was a, was a grand piano. It wasn't a big one. It wasn't a you know, big Steinway. It was a nice Steinway, but it was a... It was a, I think it was like a sort of six foot six or something. I'm not sure the size. Nice piano though. Uh, room, slightly difficult room for drums. Not a nice room, bit of a boxy room. Um, but the idea was to be able to play um, using the full sort of dynamic range of the music uh, technically and not, you know, be in the way. And that was the kind of thing. And then the second why there was a solo recital it was a slightly longer recital and i did three different parts to it I did an improvised solo i did a solo with a loop pedal and then i did a piece uh, which i'd written with the laptop um and again these three things demonstrated three different sort of dynamic levels um and they had their own challenges and then the third final recital in the third trimester uh, obviously, um, was an electric trio, which was guitar, bass and drums. And that was sort of dealing with the, with the bigger dynamic, you know. So it was like a bigger kit, a bigger bass drum, all that kind of stuff. Um, I was going to use the same kit for all three, and I, I did use the same kit for the first two, um, Actually, the only thing that was different in the third one was the I I, I didn't use an eighteen. I used a twenty-inch bass drum. Um, everything else was identical. All the cymbals, everything. You know, I used the same rides and crash that I used for all three. Um, but yeah, and it was. But it, the main thing about it was this this thing of of 
controlling and using natural weight. Um, which was a kind of second thing I was going to talk about today, just in relation to uh, leading on from last week's podcast, really. So if you're not listening to last week's, I recommend it. It's a, it's a thrilling listen. Um, it's about kind of abstract soloing in a way, but it's also talking about feathering the bass drum. And the thing about feathering the bass drum, learning to feather the bass drum, is about understanding how you strike the bass drum um, a low dynamic and about how you use the weight of natural weight of your foot and the weight of the beater, setting up the pedal correctly. Now, I didn't get into too much of that last week, and it's, I'm not going to get into it too much of it now. You know, it's something that I teach, and if, you know, if somebody wanted a lesson, wanted to talk about it in a lesson, I'd get into a lot of detail about it. But it's, it's, there's, this kind of, there's a systematic thing with it, which I, and, I, and I sort of like that because I, I think, you know, like the words of Sonny Emery, you know, it, drums is a, phys- is a physics problem, so to speak. I think that's a I think that's a correct quote of his. But is it you know it's a physics. Everything's like a physics thing. You know, drums is a physics um, situation here. You know, we're dealing with like gravity. We're dealing with using the weight of whatever stick you're using, and if you're understanding that awareness of it, then you can strike the drum in an effective way. And so last week I, I was talking about full stroke and half stroke and uh, I was talking about molar technique and finger stroke and all those kind of things, which is that. Um, and basically all those techniques, the fundamental of them all, if you sort of step away from like going down the rabbit hole of each individual technique, the fundamental thing is about understanding dropping something the weight of something and collecting it at the other end of the energy you know so as as you as you go in to strike the drum those different techniques have a different level of intent behind how you're doing what you're doing you know so when you're trying to make like a technical adjustment or you're trying to learn a new technique or whatever it is you're trying to do, you know, the bottom line is that should be at the forefront of your understanding before you begin that. And if you begin approaching those techniques with that in mind, I think it sets you off in a in a good in a in, in a good direction i think if you just if you say i'm going to learn molar technique and so you go what is molar technique and start from what is molar technique and then you you start learning molar technique without having that kind of insight before beginning learning that technique or you know of or finger control rebound you know um those kind of techniques if you go into them without pre-thinking about just the idea of how am I going to drop the weight of this stick in and collect it at the other end, you know, and understanding that that's fundamentally what's happening. It, they're just different systems of doing that, you know, but that's what's happening. Um, then I think that it can really help with when you're going through that system of learning and practicing that new technique. It's like, 
that thing is omnipresent during that learning you know it's it, it for me it's like a fact it's about this idea of foundation again or the pre the you know this pre-rudimental book thing that i started writing that was basically if you learn these specific exercises and the practice practice them in a specific way you can play any rudiment without actually having to practice a rudiment you know it's that idea uh, the rudiments then are you know, they're, they're rhythmical shapes and happenings that have character and then therefore <clears throat> from that you're able to get straight into utilising those rudiments, using them, you know. So, uh, yeah, that was that was the sort of starting, well, not starting point, but a thought where I was thinking this week of something I wanted to share and talk about that... Um, in the hands and in the feet um, and the, the, when you're like when I was talking about the feathering thing last week there's, there's a specific uh, approach before you start feathering to understand about the physics of feathering and it's the same thing with if you're learning uh, if you're going to be want to become like a double stroke player then again it's like how do you want the double stroke to actually happen, you know, what 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 kind of approach are you going to have to that double stroke? And that thing can take you down different avenues. But as long as you understand at the beginning of it that you know whatever the the approach is, the fundamental is about going in, collecting the stick at the end of it. So you end up back at the beginning point of where you want the energy to come from. Because that's like you're really wanting to get sort of deep into to drums and the, the physics of drums. Everything has to begin from the start point, which is a kind of like so obvious. You know, you don't start a race from the fifth lap, you know, or whatever, or from you know a hundred meter sprint from the sixty meter mark, you know. But a lot of I see a lot of drummers that don't remember that when they're playing. They don't remember that actually in order to to strike the drum or do whatever i'm doing successfully i need to make sure that i'm actually doing it from the place it comes from and and it's a physics thing and the feathering the bass drum learning to feather the bass drum properly for me the way i approach it anyway uh really kind of sums it up because it's about where you where you start it's not about the actual um, the end point of the of the stroke or the end point of the input is about where you start from, and it's the same with the sticks. So, anyway, that was yeah another thing just that I've been sort of thinking quite a lot about, and uh, has been helping me in my practice. And just again, it's like anything where you um, if you're learning and still actively practicing, so if you're kind of someone... I mean, I still consider myself as a learner, you know. I don't, I don't think of myself as the finished product. I don't even know what that means, you know. Um, but I think... I, well, well, I do in one respect. I think as an artist, I know lots of people who I consider artistically as, um, as having an identity, um, and it's an identity that they're sharing with the world. This is me. This is this is my vibe, and this is what I'm doing, and and so people follow people, and they um, 
you get that thing where people suddenly take a, they go down a different avenue and all their fans go, oh, I don't like it because it's a different vibe, you know, and then then that person brings on new people, you know. And if you think about sort of great artists, actually you see that some great artists manage to bring, keep their, keep their old fans, people that follow them, and then manage to bring in new people by, by, by kind of exploring other areas, you know, and having this kind of quite wide range of appeal. I mean, somebody I always think of, um, in that respect, is the guitarist Pat Metheny, you know, because um, of the, the sort of history of. I mean, if you just take like the Pat Metheny group, which is only one part of Pat Metheny, it's not all Pat Metheny. Pat Metheny himself is, is you know, amazing artist and guitarist and composer and everything has done. You know, so many amazing projects. But if you think about Matheny in the 70s um, and when he was kind of up and coming, you know, one of the things, he had a really interesting fan base because the late 70s they had the group which toured relentlessly, you know, with Lyle and uh, Mark Egan originally and, and Danny Gottlieb and then it became Steve Robby, the original Matheny, Pat Matheny group, um, like American Garage, etc., etc., um, off-ramp and stuff. Um that group, um, actually, yeah, uh, American Garage is Mark Egan. I'm not sure what the next, can't remember what the next album is. Anyway, that, you know, that, that early kind of group, which was, uh, they toured relentlessly, you know. Um, but also, like, if you watch uh, Joni Mitchell's Shadows and Light, if you watch that gig, which is an album, but it's, a, it's actually a DVD, it's a, uh, well, it's a video, it was originally on video, Um the band is Jaco Pastorius, Michael Brecker, Don Elias. Um, all three people are no longer with us. Actually, sadly, Lyle Mays as well, no longer with us, and Pat Metheny, and uh, and, and of course Joni. Um, and then there's some guest some guest appearance stuff on there. But the, the fundamental band is is that group. Uh, and Lyle's, funnily, he doesn't feature a huge amount on camera, but he, he kind of features in the music. Uh, he's playing kind of piano and and Rhodes and things and stuff, and Hammond, I think, and, and you know, like Oberheim and stuff. He's kind of sound. And then Matheny's, you know, he's make, he sounds so beautiful, and that, it's that beautiful 70s Matheny uh and the bright size life sound, and then that kind of early eighties travels and all that stuff. But if you think about as an artist, like what a great, um, what a great decision in a way to to be involved in that music, you know, as well as doing his own thing. Um, because it could be very easy for someone like Matheny, like an amazing player and amazing writer. So, like, that's, like, the dream thing, isn't it? If you're, like, great player and you write great stuff, you don't need to do anything with anybody. You just need to do, you know, do your thing. People will buy your music, have your group. Beautiful. And everyone, you know, and that's, like, you know, mega. But, no, you know, Matheny's is the, the, the great legacy so far, you know, because there's still, you know, loads of stuff I'm sure that he'll do in the future you know and uh, but it's just that thing if you think about going from that late 70s thing and, and 
that fan base that you'd have built, been building up, you know, from being exposed to that kind of rock crowd. And then the sort of jazz, the big jazz crowd, you know, and the ECM, the early thing with ECM and being on that label with doing the Bright Size Life album with Bob Moses and Jaco Pastorius, which is still a beautiful, beautiful, timeless album, you know. Always will be the album. It's, it's, it's a real mark in the sand of music. It's irrelevant about when it was made. It's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, but it's that kind of label then... The, the whole ECM thing from the early 70s and particularly, you know, uh, like artists like Keith Jarrett, you know, Eberhard Weber and people have made this, really made this kind of iconic uh, label, helped to make this label uh, kind of like this iconic. I mean, it's like, you know, people describe a certain way that I play the drums and did years ago, you say, you know, ECM kind of drumming, you know, it's like, oh, it's got a kind of sound. And, uh, and I still have that conversation now, particularly with, you know, if I have, uh, if I, if I have Norwegian students and they really understand what that, that thing is, you know. And uh, part of that is the, sort of the, the Jon Christensen thing. But, you know, uh, it's not just that. It's, it's more of an approach to playing uh, jazz, playing music that's open. It's, it's a specific kind of uh, rhythmical approach to that, and I, I, I feel, I still feel very close to that um, type of playing. Even though I don't play much like that anymore, I still definitely can sort of jump into that mode very quickly, you know. But, uh, but yeah. So you know, Matheny was on that label, and then there's that kind of, uh, then there's. Then the Matheny group was huge, but it's not just about the Matheny group. It's it's the Pat Matheny himself and the people he's worked with, and all those different those different groups that he's done with all sorts of different people and great drummers. You know, he's worked with like Sanchez and Bill Stewart. You know, um, and then Paul Wertico was in that the Matheny group for years. Great player, um, and so. And then there's like a, there's a lovely album called um, there's the, the, the one he did was with Bill Stewart and Steve Swallow with John Schofield, you know, um, can you see my house for me? And that 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 uh, I think it's that's the name of the album. And they they did a, quite a lot of tours that with those two guitars and 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 bass and drums and yeah, it's just great. It's just like you really when you really start to think about the breadth of work of the artist. And how he's never lost fans. I think it's like a remarkable thing, because if you think about, um, if you think like a like a pop artist, you know, and then they do a jazz album or something, and you get half of their fans go, "Oh, it's bloody jazz album. It's bloody crap," you know, whatever. Oh, it's bloody jazz. I don't like jazz, you know, whatever. Uh, and then you get a load of jazzers going, "Oh, they can't do jazz," you know. Oh, she can't do jazz, or you know, all this nonsense you end up like alienating lots of people but actually the genius of it is you end up being talked about a lot you know which is kind of there's a thing in what's that thing they say in show business nothing worse than uh, in show business when no one's talking about you you know it's uh, regardless of what they're saying about you it's just if they're not saying anything about you and so i think you know in some respects I mean, people make albums for all kinds of reasons, especially if they're doing cover or pastiche albums. There's all kinds of stuff going on that's in the background of those things. They're not just, in my opinion, artistic decisions, you know. But but they 
they can they can if they're genius stroke they can really bring on a, a whole new set of fans you know a whole new set of followers and the, and the thing that's great about that for those people i always think is that if they get into somebody and they get into somebody he's maybe doing something a bit different but he's fundamentally you know he's still themselves you know he's still the artist then they've got all that back catalog to kind of you know go back to and fall in love with and and uh and enjoy you know um I mean, if you think about Joni Mitchell's last couple of albums that she that she did a years ago with the orchestra, the, the with the Vince Mendoza arrangements, uh, some of them are standards and some of them are her tunes. There's two albums, isn't there? There's both sides now, and then there's Travel Log. Um, two albums with great drummers on Peter Erskine and Brian Blade, you know, on those albums, uh, and Vince Mendoza arrangements. They're just amazing albums. And they're beautiful, beautiful albums. And, they're, you know, they have a, a kind of a, maybe a different appeal than Blue, you know, one of her earlier albums was kind of more small and intimate. But I would think that anybody that was into Blue would love then and find Travelogue. Or the, the thing that's more likely is that somebody got in who was younger got into Travelog because it was a new album it was promoted in some way or somebody said oh this is an amazing album and was maybe into jazz and into Brian Blade you know and into Vince Mendoza and um can't remember it's Mark Johnson on that album as well um uh, not 100% sure uh I think and Herbie's on um Herbie is on both sides now for sure anyway anyway if someone who's younger got into Joni through that, then they're definitely going to be digging Baloo, you know, going back to um, those earlier albums. So it's always a, it's always a great thing of, of having that, of getting into artists later and going back into the back catalogue and then, and then being someone loyal to an artist and, and enjoying that journey through their career, through those different things that they do, you know. Um, so the artistic thing sort of just went down a completely bizarre rabbit hole there about the artistic thing uh, you know whether you consider yourself an artist or not I still consider myself someone who's still learning to play the drums uh, I don't know whether I'm an artist really uh, <laughs> I just think I'm flailing about still trying to get my stuff together you know um so it's always a really like interesting dynamic, I think, for one's personal kind of development, of um, of, of, of yeah, of, of kind of checking in with where you are and trying to find the next new thing to practice. And uh, because I have to live with things for a while for them to to get in and sound good for me, you know, I, I can't just learn something and it's like yeah, boom, there it is, you know. It has to kind of settle for a while and uh, and then it has to have a place to live within my playing, you know, within music and stuff. So anyway, I think um, that's kind of rambled on for too long, actually, now. And it's getting close to tea time. I'm getting a little bit hungry. Um, and I'd like to get this out tonight. It's going to take a bit of editing because I want to put these clips in. So um, thanks for listening, if you have been. Really appreciate it as ever. Thanks to the people that sent me a few messages in the last week or two. They've been listening. Uh, really appreciate it. I'm glad you've been, been enjoying what's um, what's been coming out. And 
yeah, still hoping it's a couple of interviews I'm still really keen to kind of do. It's taking a little bit of organising and a little bit of persuasion as well, but we'll see whether or not I can kind of twist the arm. Um, so it may be that I'm going to move the release date for this to uh, maybe a Wednesday or Tuesday. I'm not 100% sure that I'm not. The, the, the Sunday thing is not giving me options when I want to when I want to record an episode and play, basically, which is the main thing. Uh, if I want to do some... The next episode I want to do, uh, again, I want to be back on the kit and doing something else. And it just isn't working out on the weekend. Um, as I've explained before, let's try and keep off the kit at the weekend. Uh, the, the only time I play at weekend, and I'm not bothered about it, is when the weather's really bad. Because where I am, like at the moment, it's absolutely horrendous rain. It's just so depressing. Sorry, I don't want to go on about it. But um, but if I'm playing in this weather, it doesn't seem to annoy anybody because the sound just doesn't travel, you know. Um, it's funny, that thing in it, air, you know, and uh, sound waves. The, the worst time uh, here with playing is when it's... I mean, it's just obvious, isn't it? When it's a, a warm, really still summer's day when everyone's got the windows open because it's warm and people are off work because it's summer and they're at home and they're all sat in the garden they want to have a bit of a vibe and they've got some person playing some random shit across the kind of across the airwaves that they don't want to listen to and so uh i tend to I've, like, I've got a load of tracking. I've got some drum parts to record this week for some some of my own tunes. And, uh, like, the weather Thursday and Friday is pretty crap, so I'm going to be basically tracking drums for two days, which will be great, and I'm gonna, I'll am gonna i be able to go up into, into the evening, you know. But this weekend um, is nice, so I won't be playing at all. And then it's bank holiday Monday. I'm driving, which, will be, which is going to be good. So I'll be away all day and absolutely knackered by the time I get home. So I sort of think I'm going to be making a change to the release date, uh, either to not decided on Tuesday or Wednesday yet. Uh, things seem to be going out basically on a on a Tuesday, and that seems to be my date. So I'm going to try and get this out tonight. So anyway, I'm going to um, turn this off, get it edited get it saved, get it uploaded, and then try and get back to the house and uh, not get soaked and have me tea. So thanks for listening, and uh, I'll speak to you again very soon. Bye for now.